in all of these species that my collaborators and I have been able to look at, I find it hilarious that the one species that everybody always expected to be an outlier has never turned out to be an outlier in any way, shape or form. And that's our species, that's humans. This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilari Makela. And today's episode is about the human brain. You don't need to know much about biology to have a vague idea that the human brain is pretty big. And I think most of us would easily buy the claim that it is this big brain that's allowed us to be such flexible learners, flexible problem solvers, who are able to live on climates from the Saharan desert to the Siberian tundra. But biologically speaking, how special is our brain? Is it a biological anomaly? What if anything makes it stand out from the rest of the animal kingdom? And perhaps most pressingly, why is our brain the way it is? If it is such an evolutionally advantageous thing to grow a huge brain, well, why didn't everybody else do it too? Susanna Herculana Hosel is one of the most merited people I think alive to address these questions. Before her work, our understanding of the human brain was really limited. We knew that, well, if we compare ourselves to other apes or our ancestors, yep, our brain is pretty big. And we knew also that we're pretty smart. And so we concluded that there is probably some link between these two points. But we actually didn't know what the link was. And indeed, our best guesses about what this exact link was were at least very hazy and sometimes wild off the mark. But then the puzzle was pretty much solved. And it was solved by Susanna Herculana Hosel. And the broad conclusion that emerges from her work is that to understand the origins, the evolution of intelligence, brute brain size does not really matter that much and brain to body ratio matters even less. What matters is the number of neurons in the brain, especially some areas of the brain. And we'll get into the details of what all of this means and especially why this new knowledge, this new understanding explains a host of biological puzzles that we didn't really understand before. I personally struggle to think of a single other um, idea, single other uh, concept in human sciences that has clarified to me so much of the way that we are both particular, both quite special as a species, but also not really special and just a continuation of the broader themes in the animal kingdom. We are not special. We actually have exactly the kind of brain that you would predict from a primate of our size. And that's not the case for all animals. There are those whose brains are way too complex for their size, but humans are not such a species. And yet there is something that makes us very particular. I'll let her tell you why. And this is a really wonderful conversation because it's not just about the human brain, but it's a really clear window into the ways that human evolution unfolds in ways that are so different from a lot of our best armchair speculations would have suggested. And this is really a repeated theme on the show, talked about it in the very first two episodes, and especially in episodes 20, 21, and 23. Do check them out too, if this is a theme that interests you. Before we start, I do also want to point out that there is some technical vocabulary in this conversation which might confuse you a little bit. Don't worry about these terms too much. But I thought it might be just good to, to highlight uh, one thing here, which is that we talk a fair amount about the cortex. Uh, you don't have to know anything about the cortex to follow the conversation, but it might just help to have a little idea what we are talking about. So if you visualize a kind of icon of a brain, an image of a brain, well, everything you see is the cerebral cortex. It's that foldy grayish. Uh, thing that you would imagine when thinking about the brain. Anyways, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And if you do, please consider showing some support 
You can do that for free by uh, sharing this episode, sharing the podcast, subscribing to my new Substack channel, where you will also get short bullet points and longer essays based on this conversation straight to your inbox if you like them. You can also support financially, of course, via patreon.com. And as a bonus, you will also then get some prefaces to the episodes where you can have a little bit of anticipatory idea of what's coming up with some useful links. Anyway, I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Susanna Herculana Hosel. Professor Susanna Herculana Hosel, welcome to Unhumans. Thank you, my pleasure. So uh, I have long known that the human brain is a biological anomaly. It is way too big. And it's also completely abnormally shaped so that it has extended towards the frontal area so that we have this massive frontal uh, cortex uh, compared to other animals. Um, How wrong have I been? Completely. (laughs) But in very good company, because that's what everybody used to think. For the longest time, you know, the human brain is special. And I completely understand the, the, the lure to go with that idea because the it, it seems perfectly intuitive that the bigger an animal is, the bigger it should be. So I understand the allure in thinking that human brains must be special, that humans as a species must be special because we are pretty comfortable with the idea that it's brains that produce the mind and thoughts and, uh, you know, all these beautifully complex things that we do. And yet we don't have the biggest brain around. Who has the biggest brain? Blue whales, Hmm. um, the, or actually maybe the humpback. Uh, Some gigantic whale has uh, a a brain that's about nine kilograms and ours is 1.5. Okay. (laughs) So even an an elephant has uh, a brain that's, you know, the size of my entire forearm. That's three times the size of, of our brain. And yet we study elephants and not the other way around as far as we know. So how does one account for that if we don't, if we humans don't have the biggest brain around? So our brain is not the biggest. Sure, there's ample evidence of that. That's not something left for disputing. But then if our brain is not the biggest, then our brain must be the best, right? It must be better in in, in some way. And that's where all the things to exceptionality begin. And so this has been a, a, a long standing mystery, if you, if you will, how come we don't have the biggest brain and yet we're the ones who built this super complex civilization and uh, we're the ones studying everybody else. And which is why when this paleontologist, Harry Jerison, pointed out that relative to the size of our body, human brains are, as you said, um, about seven times too large, seven times the size that you would expect for a generic mammal of of our size, um, if that generic mammal existed. That seemed to finally settle the question. It was the the first time that there was a, a reasonable answer to the question of how come humans are all that. And when was this? I'm, I'm curious. 1973. 
73, okay, okay. So uh, oil crisis and uh, evolution of intelligence. <laughs> yeah, so, but it, it was a, it was a longstanding question, right? But an unresolved one. So what Jerison did was point out that, um, well, there was this well-known relationship between the size of the body and the size of the brain, which makes perfect intuitive sense. The bigger an animal is, the bigger its brain is, right? Um, seems just about right. Jerison uh, reasoned that, well, if bigger animals have bigger brains, it's because they must need to have bigger brains. He also assumed, uh, Jerison acknowledged already that the thing that we should really be looking at is numbers of neurons. Which makes perfect sense, I mean, from co in the computer era. Makes you know. perfect yeah. sense. It's not the biggest computer, it's the chips with the most uh, transistors or whatever. Right? We've, we've learned that much already, that, uh, you, you know, it doesn't matter the size of the, of the box containing all those, all those units. You really, what you really care about is the number of information processing, the signal processing units. So anyway, I'm totally on board with Jerison. And what Jerison had to do then was because he, he acknowledged that, well, we don't have those numbers. We don't know how many, how many neurons different brains are made of. But if we assume, and this is a very important thing, Jerison was, uh, um, he, he was aware that this was a very important assumption that he needed, needed to make explicitly. Okay. So he said, if we assume that a brain is as large as the number of neurons that it contains. So the two brains of a similar size should be made of similar numbers of neurons, and the larger a brain is, the more neurons it should contain, right? And so just to take stock, uh, what you would agree with him that the, the amount of neurons does matter. That's for sure, and, and 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 I guess absolutely. And we would we would also, I guess, everybody agrees that if we just look at human evolution, say the last seven million, four million, two million years, what we do see is a large increase in brain brain size. Absolutely, absolutely. If you look at uh, absolute brain size, you see the the absolute size of our ancestors triple over the last two million years, which is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So there are seeds of truth in this story. Yeah. So where exactly, where, where do we face the problems? So there are, there, there's, there's a few huge problems and the, and the problems, as could be expected, they lie in the assumptions that Jerison had to make. So there's, there's two huge assumptions that needed to be true. And I could show that neither of them is true. Assumption number one is that bigger animals do need more neurons to run their bodies. Assumption number two is that bigger brains always have more neurons than smaller brains, which translates into if you have two brains of a similar size, they're going to be made of similar numbers of neurons, right? So turns out that neither one of those things is true. Um, the, so where can we begin? Let's, let's start with the, the, the second one that, uh, brains of a similar size have similar numbers of neurons. Once I, I realized that that was an assumption 
that was a, a very, very widespread assumption that everybody in the field of comparative um, anything, comparative biology, comparative evolution, um, everybody seemed to be working with that assumption that you so they would say that it is what at the end of the day what matters is neurons but we don't need to worry about them because we can just guess that if a brain is bigger than another brain it will have more neurons correct correct and so the the reason why that assumption was necessary was that we didn't have the means to count neurons not in not in a way that was practical enough, rapid enough for handling whole brains. There, there was stereology. Stereology means essentially that uh, if, you, if you take a full brain, if you chop it thinly, if just section it thinly, like carpaccio, right? Cut a whole brain carpaccio style and then take regular um, sections along that brain and then focus your microscope on tiny little portions, tiny little fractions of those carpaccio sections. Um, stereology assumes that if you know what fraction of the brain you're looking at, if you can count how many neurons, how many cells you have in that fraction of a brain, you can extrapolate to the whole and say, well, then this is how many cells or neurons you have there. Um, the problem with uh, these estimates made with stereology is exactly the same problem as polling a population in a country to predict what the result of an election is going to be. I guess then would be kind of if you want to know the population of a country and you would take like a, a patch of land here and there and then work from that without having any idea of the, the, the whether it's New York or, or in the middle of Idaho. Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 the same. It's the same problem. So how do you how do you fix that? How do you work around that? One workaround is you do a full census. You can try to to reach out to every single person in the in the country you can you could try to enumerate every single neuron in a brain but well it's time consuming it's extremely expensive and chances are you're still not sampling everybody so if you can't do that if you can't do a full census what's what's the next best thing well if you could make the whole thing homogeneous if you could take the whole country, take all the, pe the, the people in the country and just even them out um, throughout the country and sample that, or if you could take that brain and literally homogenize it and literally dissolve those, that heterogeneity and where the cells are located, then any sample that you might take from country or brain would be representative of the whole, right? And that is exactly that homogenization is exactly what I realized that I could do. I could literally transform brains into soup. And when you do that, the, the, the beauty of the soup is that the, those cells that were once organized in very, very particular ways, making up the different parts of a brain, now they're just spread out pretty evenly, pretty 
homogeneously in that in that liquid, right? And because it's a liquid, you can keep it homogeneous just by agitating it, you know, just mix the soup before you eat it. So you make sure that you don't have any deposits um, at the, the bottom of your, your bowl. And then take any four samples out of that, that homogeneous soup in under your microscope. And in a matter of 15 minutes, you have a full count. So that's, that's what I figured I could do. And that's what I started doing about 20 years ago. And now we know the pretty much the amount of neurons that different, at least mammals have, right? Not only mammals, not only mammals, we have birds, we have, so uh, through my, my network of collaborators in different countries, we're right now at 267 species and growing. You say in your book that human brain is remarkable, but not special. So it's not special in the way that traditionally people might have said that, oh, it's, it's just way too big in every way, uh, or that it's weirdly shaped or something. We actually didn't touch upon that, but am I right that if you look at the, the percentage of these frontal areas, for example, or the way that they connect to others is pretty similar? in humans and, and other mammals. Correct. Okay, so there's not a huge difference there. So there is, and, and so that you have found a way to throw those ideas out of the window, but you do say still that there is something remarkable. And am I right that we have more neurons in the cortex than any species that you have studied? Correct, correct. So it took me a while to decide what word I wanted to use to qualify human brains. So remarkable means noteworthy, right? And we are remarkable in that, like you just said, we are the species that has the most neurons in the cerebral cortex, even though we don't have the biggest brain, we don't have the biggest body. And importantly, this is not most neurons compared to body size or anything like that. It's just in absolute terms, most neurons. This is absolute number of neurons, absolute number of neurons. What is the cerebral cortex for those who, because we're not, just to be clear, we're not talking about the absolute amount of neurons in the brain. We're not talking about other parts of the brain, but the cerebral cortex. So maybe it would be useful to have uh, uh, the neuroscientist here <laughs> explain quickly what, what is uh, the cerebral cortex. So here's, here's my, my short take on what a cerebral cortex is and why do we care so much about how many neurons you have in the cerebral cortex. Technically, the brain doesn't need a cerebral cortex. The, the body doesn't need a cerebral cortex. All the parts of the brain that operate the body, that um, run your basic functions, that even move your body, they're, they're not in the cortex. They're, they, they live in the other, let's, let's go with lower, just physically lower parts of your, of your brain. All the parts of the brain that are not cerebellum and not cerebral cortex. Those are the parts, those are the structures that are made by neurons that both command the body and receive feedback from the body. The point is, the the cerebral cortex literally saddles the rest of the brain as in it sets a top exactly like a saddle on a horse. Uh, I like the horse analogy because 
a horse can function without a saddle, right? Of course it can. Yeah. The horse is, is its own thing. But once you have a saddle on top of the horse, you have the means to direct. You have the means to organize. You have this added layer of complexity to the horse behavior, right? And that's the exact same thing to a brain that has a cortex. So you don't need the cortex, but once you have it saddling the, the, the brain, you have the possibility for um, much more complex and flexible behavior. And that is because what the cortex is, is this structure that receives copies of everything else that's of everything that's going on in the other parts of the the brain actually the cerebellum does the same thing there 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 are two saddles on the the rest of the on the trunk of the brain let's 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 put it that way so they receive both cerebral cortex and cerebellum which by the way gain neurons together um in evolution they both receive copies of everything that goes on in the trunk of the brain. And more than that, and, and especially the cerebral cortex, it has these horizontal connectivities and horizontal simply means that it talks to itself. The, the cortex has um, a lot of the neurons in the cortex. They simply talk to each other. They, they, they exchange signals. They, they build information together as they exchange signals with, with one another. And the result is that this crosstalk is what we call associative processing. It means that the cortex is capable of putting things together that the rest of the brain can't do just because it doesn't have the, the the connections that allow it. And hence the links to whatever reasoning, uh, thinking, perhaps consciousness. Exactly. Yeah, but let's keep it basic. So with this, with this associative connectivity, the cerebral cortex is the part of the brain that has the capability for building patterns, for building associations, for finding associations between your actions, between your action and something else that happened out there, right? So now the next step and what makes it all work is that the, the cortex has the means, it has the, the, the connections that transfer the result of those associations, those new associations made by the cortex to that trunk of the brain just like the, the 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 trunk of a tree you have you have this saddle on top that uh, can modify it can it gets copies of the, the all the, the signals it puts those signals together it creates new associations it finds patterns it it finds patterns in the past it can use those patterns to simulate what next so it can start representing a future it can represent this cortex can represent things that are not available to your senses anymore right it can keep all these ideas active it can keep all these representations active and it can make you act it can modify your actions it can modify your body and how you feel and what you do based not only on what is actually going on right now but also on what you expect to happen first or uh, to happen next, or even more, you can start acting now towards futures that haven't happened yet, but that you can foresee, that you can anticipate, that you can desire, 
and that you can then, now that you have a cortex settling the rest of your brain, you can act upon and make happen. And I think that's actually very important because those are things that we too often people might say that these are uniquely human things. And what you're saying is that, well, no, but, but there is a certain intuition preserved from the fact that we have more neurons in cortex than any other species. Yes, perhaps we are better at doing mental time travel, etc. Which is why I needed a word that did not bring judgment, that did not imply better or anything. Also, that did not imply out of the ordinary, which is literally what extraordinary means. Yes. So the human brain and the human cortex are not extraordinary. Um, you could say that they are unique in its absolute number of neurons in the cortex, but that implies that it's it's been singled out, right, in the, the godlike version of the story of, of evolution. And that is not at all true. Like I just told you, we are just that one more primate species, albeit the one with the largest number of neurons. So remarkable it is. We have this remarkable, this truly remarkable number of neurons in the cortex, which is more than anybody else has. So let me put that in context. 16 billion neurons is twice the number of cortical neurons in the next next species, which are gorillas and orangutans. Wait, do gorillas and orangutans have more than chimpanzees? Yes, they do. Chimpanzees have six to seven billion neurons in the cortex. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So after chimpanzees, you have elephants with five to six billion. Then you have, uh, we estimate all the whales, dolphins and whales with anything between 1 billion and 3 to 4 billion neurons, given the, the, the size of their cortices and the rules that we know that apply to their closest relatives, which are antelopes and um, giraffes and hippopotamus. So there we are at 1 to 4 billion neurons. One with one to three billion neurons, you have baboons with two to three, you have monkeys with about one billion, one to two billion neurons. You also have macaws with two to three billion neurons. Um, crows, which are really smart creatures, they actually they're almost there, but they don't make it to one billion neurons, right. And everybody else, everybody else has fewer than 1 billion neurons in the cortex. So see, that tells you already what we know about all these species that I just, just um, ranked to you. What we know about them makes us very comfortable to say, to qualify these species as the smart ones, which in a very interesting and amusing twist means that once you have um, data to infer that T-Rex had two to three billion neurons in its telencephalon, it's in, in its cortex, regardless of how large it was, then the, the natural implication is that it must have been as smart as a baboon is these days. Which is absolutely terrifying. Come on. Yeah, yeah. And very counterintuitive. Actually, for listeners, I, I will link um, 
uh, I don't know who produced it, but I saw on your website uh, there was a, a seven-minute kind of mini video documentary about this, where you go through the findings. That's good. I'm going to link this to the to the episode description. Yeah, please do. I think that's a, that's a fun video telling this telling this story, and it got a lot of pushback from both paleontologists, specialists, and armchair specialists who would still argue that in Jerison style. But those animals were gigantic. If they were gigantic, didn't they need all those neurons to run their bodies? Which brings us to that other assumption right back there in, in the, the beginning of the story of where did we go wrong in our assumptions? So that was assumption number two, number one, actually, that bigger animals need more neurons to run their bodies. Let me put it this way. If you ask a biologist or if you ask a neuroscientist or a paleontologist, apparently, do you need more neurons to run a bigger body? They would say, of course, yes, of course you do. There's more, there's going to be more muscle. There's going to be more, more skin, right? There's going to be more stuff to run. So it should take more neurons. Now, the fun thing is, and I've had my share of, of, of this fun talk, asking this question to every single engineer, um, especially biomedical engineers I run into, and ask them, do you need more controlling units to operate a bigger body? And their answer is, what? Of course you don't. If the, if the, if the body, if, if you're not changing the shape of the body, if you're not changing the number of joints, if you're not changing the degrees of freedom of movement of action, then you can run a tiny little human shaped robot, kid sized one and a T-Rex sized human shaped robot with exactly the same number of controlling units, right? So once you put it that way, it starts making more sense and more intuitive sense also. And then we can go look at the data and the data show that uh, there is no mandatory relationship between how large you are and how many neurons you're going to find running that body. It's rather, it's whatever works. Can you run a big body with 30 million neurons? Yes, of course. Can you, can you run uh, a thousand times bigger body with, with the same number of neurons? Yes. Can you run it with fewer neurons? It's still yes. Yeah. And so would it be right to, to kind of take stock of where, where we are in that when we just focus on the cortex? And we do your brain soup method and we actually get a pretty good, pretty accurate number of how many neurons do we have. We find that, yes, bigger animals sometimes tend to have more, but it's nowhere nearly as linear of a relationship as you might want to have in the kind of in the in the close to one billion or more. You have everything from whales to crows, tiny birds and, and, and huge mammals, etc. So here's what you have to add to that statement to make it true. Now, a, a, a given number of neurons may occur in a tiny little brain that's extremely neuron dense. Like the crow. Exactly. And it can also occur in a much, much bigger brain, like a giraffe brain, about the, the, the size of your two hands together, um, which is much less dense. But see, the number of neurons, you have to concede that 
all animals are not apples. There are apples, there are oranges, there are all different types of fruit out there. And so as long as you, but once you, once you, once you know that you're, you're comparing apples to apples, provided that you're comparing, say, primates to primates, it is true that the bigger the brain is, the more neurons it has in a highly predictable manner, right? Okay. And I guess this then takes us to what you call the primate advantage. So what is the primate advantage? The, the primate advantage compared to other mammals is simply that because of the way primate brains are made of, you find a very large number of neurons in a brain that is pretty small, pretty small compared to other animals. Like I said, uh, a giraffe with, uh, is, is a non-primate with a similar number of neurons in the cortex as a, as a macaque. And the macaque cortex is about 100 grams. The giraffe cortex is 400 grams or so. Okay, so the primate brain is able to pack more neurons to a small brain. Does the primate brain add more neurons as it scales? Is it faster at scaling as it grows bigger? While other animals have their brain size become much larger as they gain neurons, in primates, the two things happen at the same pace. Okay. So... A primate, a primate with 10 times more neurons only has a 10 times bigger brain. A non-primate with 10 times the neurons has a 40 times bigger brain. And, and here comes the, 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 the gist, which I think is perhaps the most crucial finding, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but for me when I was, for example, reading through Human Advantage, and already back in the days when I first saw your TED Talk, the one thing that I remember taking away was that when you plot small primates, small monkeys basically, on a graph predicting how big they are and how many neurons they are, and you just draw a line, humans are right on that line. Humans are right on the line. So let me, let me put this in, in numbers that are meaningful to um, the listeners. The, our brain is about 2% of the size of the body. Yeah. Right. The brain of most other primate species is also about 2% of the size of their bodies. I mean, the, the proportion, the proportion of our, uh, between our head and the rest of our body is the same proportion that you recognize in small monkeys. The outliers here is the great apes. Yeah. Like gorillas and chimpanzees. So they have these gigantic bodies, but not the brain size that you would expect for their bodies. But I think there's a very, very good and simple explanation for that, is that they've reached the limit of how much energy that's going to cost them. It's very costly to, to run a bigger body. And great apes with the big body that they have, they have to eat over eight hours per day. They eat eight and a half hours per day, which evidence shows that in practice, that's, they're at their limit. They cannot eat any more than that. They're, 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 they've reached the wall. They're, they're right there. And our ancestors must have been there too, but somehow 
and I know you have an answer to watch this somehow, they were able to unlock this kind of realm of having not the same energy constraints. And suddenly they become another normal, quote unquote, normal, general, generic primate again with the kind of brain. Let me put it this way, Hilary. The It's not that the, the, the constraints changed. The constraints are still there. We still need as much energy. And this is a very important point. Our bodies still use exactly as much energy as you would expect a warm-blooded body this size to use. What changed is that our ancestors developed a cheat. And the cheat is that we have a means to absorb more energy from the foods that we put in our mouths. And that's called pre-processing or pre-digesting your, your food, or let me put it in the, the, the blunt but very effective way uh, of phrasing this. Our food is pre-chewed before we put it in, in our mouths. And that is what cooking is. And I don't mean necessarily cooking, this pre-digestion, this pre-chewing of the food that we eat. Um, of course, it can be done extraordinarily well with fire, which also makes foods delicious, right? So much so that, I mean, your dogs will prefer, my dogs prefer cooked food to anything else. Um, if you make that mistake, you're doomed for life. They're not gonna, <laughs> they're not gonna want to eat anything else, right? Food, so fire does that beautifully, but you don't need fire to cook your foods in the sense of pre-digesting, of pre-chewing your food. Yeah, I mean, a lot of raw diets are based on things like blenders, a lot of blending, etc. Which is cooking. Pre-digesting, right? yeah. It's a different type of, of, of cooking. And, and, that's, and that's what you had with the first uh, human technology, I like to think of as stone tools. Stone tools were these artifacts that whether you, you have the, 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 the means to fashion them, to craft them yourself, or you just use stones as they come, which, by the way, is something that a number of monkeys know to do. When you use a stone to pound your food, to pound seeds, to crush roots, you are literally pre-chewing. You're using the stone to chew your food before you put it in your, in your mouth. And that is extremely transformative because now that what comes into your mouth is already softened and pre-digested and broken into, first, it's going to take you much less time and effort to break it down in your mouth to the point where you can actually swallow and to those who think that, oh, come on, chewing is, a, chewing is a luxury. We don't need to chew. We can just swallow. No, you can't. And so this is the, the human story short, then, is that we are a primate. And primates have this, to be a mammal, this very unique brain design that can pack a lot of neurons into a brain. And especially as the brain grows, you can, you can keep adding a lot of neurons into that brain, which would predict, you say, that if you would have a primate of our size, you would have the brain of our size. Now, all the other big primates cannot have that big of a brain because they would have to be eating, what, 10, 12 hours a day to feed, to, to, to have enough calories. And we don't because we cook. Exactly. So let me put it that way. Um, as 
primates start becoming large enough that they reach that limit of how many hours they can eat per day. Once you have that limitation, you either grow a big body or a big brain. And big bodies, the um, um, the way that the great apes went, and and it's it's uh, the in the evolution of great apes. If we had the fossils, which we don't, the the prediction would be that as, that the body keeps growing, but the brain lags behind. And the, there's a very simple explanation for that, which is simply that there isn't enough energy. Yeah, yeah. But as humans started um, um, started cooking as humans gave themselves this opportunity for of more of having more energy once you have this opportunity then both things can keep increasing at the same at the same pace right so you have both a larger body and a larger uh, brain with more neurons I think one of the fascinating things is about this is that when we say things like, well, human brain is not special, yeah, it has a lot of neuron, the cortex has more neurons than any other brain, but that it fits on these graphs. I think some people might say, oh, but that sounds like, you know, at the end of the day, you can always find a graph to fit anything, but it really isn't so because, and, and I, I think elephants would be a good example of that because you find that when you don't look at the cortex, am I right, that when you include the whole brain, the elephants actually have more neurons than humans and a huge amount of them is in the cerebellum. Correct. Which for me is pretty mysterious. And I, I love this, this anecdote, this fact that I, and, and uh, if you have, if you want to share a theory of why on earth do elephants have so many neurons in their cerebellum, please do. But before that, I just want to highlight that, am I interpreting it right in saying that there is a way in which the elephant brain really is special? It's, it's like a very weird, unique brain that you can't re you wouldn't really predict it to have that kind of a brain and humans are not like that we are just what you would predict the primate to have so let me start by saying this in in all of these species that my collaborators and i have been able to look at the um, i find it hilarious that the the one species that everybody always expected to be an outlier has never turned out to be an outlier in any way, shape, or form, and that's our species. That's humans. We always fit the graph. Yeah, we always fit the graph. We're we're always on on the on the line. But you do find outliers, and the outliers are extremely remarkable in how much of an outlier um, they they are. I'll, I'll give you three that are outliers in completely different directions. Let's let's start with the elephant that has so the, the the fact the number is the elephant cerebellum has twelve times the number of neurons that you would you would expect it to have for the number of neurons that you find in its cortex. Twelve times. So it's not a little bit of an outlier. Overall, human brains, you say, around 86 billion neurons. Overall, the elephant brain was around how many? 257, I think. Okay, so over twice as much as humans. Yeah, but 98% of those neurons are in the cerebellum. And let me qualify this. Let me qualify this. In most other, most other mammals... What we find is that regardless, whatever the size of the cortex or the size of the cerebellum, 
you find that the the cortex has about 20% of all neurons, of all brain neurons, and the cerebellum has about 80%. And yes, that adds up to nearly 100%, which goes to show how few neurons you find in the, in the trunk of the brain. So 20% cortex, 80% cerebellum. In the elephant, it is 98% of all those neurons in in the cerebellum, right? Which begs the question, how come? Do we know enough about cerebellum to really know? Because, I mean, there is the mystery answer, which is to say we will never know. And this just shows that elephants are incredibly unique in a way that we will never know. (laughs) What do we know about the cerebellum? Well, let me put it this way. As long as we think that we know, we will guaranteed never know. Because the only way to find out is to come up with testable hypotheses that you can, you can play with, that you can, you can look into. So two, test, two hypotheses here, um, I think one of them not very testable but highly popular, will be, of course, that elephants needed all those neurons in the cerebellum. They've been selected for that crazy high number of neurons in the cerebellum because that gives them an advantage that they couldn't have otherwise. They, it, that gives them a function that they couldn't have otherwise. That, um, that's fine. That's a lovely story that uh, a lot of people buy into. It's not readily testable also. I don't. Th- I think it's unnecessary because there's a much simpler hypothesis, a much simpler ha- explanation, which does give you a te- testable hypothesis, which is that elephants have that many neurons in the cerebellum because there is this massive part of the body that brings massive sensory inputs to the cerebellum that no other animal has, and that is 100 kilograms, 200 pounds of trunk. So a a trunk, the elephant trunk, is this highly organized mass of muscle and, and nerve endings. So it's this highly motile, but also highly sensitive, highly tactile structure. Also, just like the, the 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 arms of an octopus, because it doesn't have joints, because it doesn't have bones, it has infinite degrees of freedom. So it can it can turn, right? It can turn in all these these interesting ways. So the point is, there's a lot of there's a lot of signal that comes and goes from the to and from the trunk, but there's also this gigantic number of neurons that innervate the trunk and that send on their signals to the cerebellum. So does it mean that the elephant needs a large cerebellum? No, I would say rather the other way around, that uh, everybody generates excess neurons in their brains as they develop. How many neurons you keep is something else, is a matter of how many neurons find something to do right? How many neurons find targets? And when you have this massive, uh, massive trunk, it just follows that the cerebellum, the neurons in the cerebellum are going to find much more to connect to. And therefore, you have opportunity for many more neurons to survive in the, in the, the cerebellum of the elephant than you find in any species. Fascinating. Yeah. You said you had three exceptions in, in, in to, to keep 
Uh, let, let's let's keep it uh, relatively short, but I would love to hear them. So please go ahead. So the other one is going the up the opposite direction. You have the the brown bear. And true, we only have the one brown bear specimen so far. Just like we only had the one elephant brain to work with so far. I think the the reasons are obvious and very fortunate, right? We should not have tons of elephants or brown bears to work with. But anyway, the the rest of the animal, the, the, the findings with the rest of the animals are so incredibly consistent that when you have this one animal that is such a massive outlier, it really stands out. So the brown bear stands out in that it also has many more neurons in the cerebellum relative to what it has in the cortex. But in the case of the brown bear, it's pretty straightforward to show that it's not because the cerebellum has more neurons than it should have, but rather that it's the cerebral cortex missing a very large number of neurons. The cere- How come? I think there's a very, very likely answer, which is there is not enough energy to keep up all those all those neurons. So same as with the great apes. Same as with the great apes. And the, 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 the evidence in the case of the brown bear is these are animals that hibernate for six months of the, of the year. Hibernation is not optional. Hibernation is not optional. Hibernation is not a strategy. It's not a luxury. Hibernation is your body realizing, uh, acknowledging that I'm out of energy. Things are going to look really, really bad from here on. So just shut everybody down, uh, shut everything down until environmental temperatures go back up. Yeah. The third is the raccoon. And the raccoon is an outlier in a really cool way because every single part of the raccoon brain has twice the number of neurons that you would predict in a carnivorous brain of its size. Okay. It's, it's like, do, do you know how in animal evolution, every so often there is a doubling of the entire genome, which gives you new opportunities. It's like the entire raccoon brain underwent a doubling of neurons. Any speculations on why? I think it just happened. And the, the, the consequence is that you have this creature that is fairly small. It has a fairly small brain, but it has twice the number of neurons that you would expect. Incidentally, those numbers put the raccoon on par with primates. Really? <laughs> if you told me, if you gave me, if, if you gave me the numbers for a raccoon and didn't tell me what it was, I would tell you, oh, what a cool primate brain. Yeah. But it's not a primate, it's a raccoon, right? And that makes per- that makes perfect sense, of course, with um, the all the anecdotes of how uh, smart these creatures are. This is such a nice angle to the humans are yes, remarkable, but not special. Is that they are animals that are special? <laughs> you know, they are things that where you really wouldn't see it coming. And in humans, we fit right. on that line of being a primate of our size, and we were able to fit that line because we cook. Exactly. So that's a very good point. It's not that there aren't any outliers out there. There are outliers. It's just that we're not one of them. And, and it's okay. You know, that, that's not demeaning in any way. That doesn't mean that we're, that doesn't make us any less because we're not out of the ordinary. We're not extraordinary. We're not exceptions. We're just 
another primate, but yes, we happen to be that one primate that managed to come up with the, the cheat that gave itself the opportunities to have this enormous number of neurons, of cortical neurons that yes, nobody else has. I like to say that uh, what I, in one word, my interest, my big scientific interest is diversity life diversity as a whole, but brain diversity in particular, and how that uh, diversity came about is evolution. Evolution is the story of changes, not improvement, very important, not improvement, simply change over geological time, right? So my, my main interest is studying diversity, and there are three axes, let's say, of I'm interested in, of what I, I focus on studying about diversity. One is what's the extent of diversity? In this case, how different can things be? How different can brains be? Number two, what are the constraints to that diversity? So what are the boundaries? Where, where can you not go beyond, right? And third thing, so what? So what that you have a brain that is this big or this small, and so what that there are the uh, that these these certain constraints exist, right? Um, and it's it's been really rewarding. I mean, really immensely satisfying that by expanding our data set, by by cataloging that diversity, you have enough information, you have enough data points. I love data. You have enough data points that you can start really appreciating all those things at the same time. What's the extent of diversity? What are the boundaries to that diversity, if any? And what comes with that diversity? So things like how much energy it takes to run a body with a certain brain size with a certain number of neurons, how long does an animal live depending on how many neurons it has? Turns out that longevity, which was long assumed to be a function of how big the body is, because the bigger the body is, the more slowly it uses energy. So the supposedly the more slowly it accumulates damages related to metabolism. So therefore, the longer the, uh, the animal should live. Turns out that body size only explains about 20 to 30% of maximal longevity across warm-blooded species. I was just going to ask if this is only for warm-blooded, yeah, because of the very long-living lizards. So here's, here's the thing. A similar relationship, turns out, also applies to the cold-blooded species. Okay. It's just that because they function at a different temperature. They can live longer. They live longer right? But let's stick to warm-blooded species. It turns out that the size of the body only accounts or only explains about 20 to 30 percent of the variation in maximal longevity. And I could show that even that 20 to 30 percent is actually a, a mathematical byproduct of the fact that to some degree, larger animals tend to have more neurons in their cortex because the actual predictor the best project, mathematical predictor of longevity across warm-blooded species is very simply how many neurons they have in their cortex. How come? That is something that I, I hope that I'll have an answer for you in the next five years or so. But the point is, 
whatever gives an animal more neurons in the cortex also slows down their pace of life, slows down their growth and um, allows them to live longer lives. And number of neurons in the cortex, this variation in number of neurons in the cortex accounts, it explains 72% of variation in maximal longevity, which in biology is unheard of. Wow. So once you realize that the best predictor of longevity amongst warm-blooded animals is simply how many neurons they have in the cortex. When you, when you plot that graph, when you compare different species, humans included, what do you find? That humans are not at all an exception, which is very important because the story of human evolution has also been told as not only the story of encephalization, of increasing encephalization, but also as the story of selection for a longer childhood yeah. and longer lifespan. Grandmother hypotheses. I mean, I've had Kristen Hawkes actually on the podcast. That's uh, episode six for those who want to listen to it. Yeah, Right. Um, so that's the idea that humans would have evolved um, much longer lives than expected for the size of our bodies because of the selective advantage of hanging out with your grandparents, more specifically hanging out with your grandmother, who could then be your big source of nutrition, but also safety and education, right? But here's the thing. You only need this explanation if it's really true that human longevity is an outlier. Yes, and you're saying that when you take neurons, it's not, yeah. <laughs> it's not an outlier. So if you had if you had a generic warm-blooded vertebrate, doesn't even need to, it doesn't need to be a primate, it doesn't need to be a mammal, yeah. it could be a bird. If you had a warm-blooded vertebrate with 16 billion neurons in the cortex, like we uh, ballpark have, you would you would predict that species to live a life of 90-something years. Yeah, yeah. That's us. That's you, would, you would predict that species to live a life of 90-something years. Yeah, yeah. That's us. That's fascinating. You would also, ex you would also expect that, that species to only reach sexual maturity. Fascinating. You would also, ex you would also expect that, that species to only reach sexual maturity about 12 years after birth. That's us. That's also us. Whoa. Regardless of the size of the body. See? Yeah. So that's what I mean. That 72% means that if you if you tell me the number of neurons in the in the cortex of a warm-blooded species, I can predict with 72% of certainty how long that species lives. And our species is on the dot. It's on the line. We're, we're, we are that generic primate, that we are that generic warm-blooded vertebrate. And, and, and I think here, by the way, one very important thing is that we discuss this with Kristen Hawkes is that a lot of skeptics say, well, hold on a second, 90s just with modern medicine and whatever. And, and just to be clear, you're not saying that that's the average lifespan, that's the maximal lifespan. It's absolutely. And notice how it doesn't matter how well you treat a mouse. It doesn't matter how uh, 
how much motor medicine. <laughs> it doesn't matter the amount of medicine you give a mouse. You will not see a mouse that lives past two years of age or so. But that is our story. And with that large number of neurons that we could afford, thanks to this opportunity that our ancestors gave themselves, along with that comes a slower pace of life, a longer childhood, which means that you have more time to um, develop your skills. You have more time to learn from your peers. You have more time to observe your parents. You have more time to listen to stories that are going to be told not only by your parents, but also by your grandparents. Because guess what? The same thing that gave you more cognitive capabilities and a longer childhood also allowed the adults of your species to live longer lives. Well, this has been an amazing tour. I want to be aware of your time also. Can I ask three questions to which you can answer with very, very with one sentence if you want to? Yeah. Is there such a thing as cognitive capability, capital C, or intelligence, capital I? When we say, look, cortical neurons pretty well correlate with, for example, intelligence, cognitive capability. I, I, I know that there will be people who respond, well, hold on a second. What do you mean by that? The, it, it, the, the cognitive capability of a animal is so different depending on what their ecological niche and we just want to find something where we come at the top as humans and so we say oh we have most cortical neurons they were we're the smartest and i yeah what do you think of that i completely agree that you need if you want to talk about intelligence you need to define it first um like you have to do when you want to talk about anything agree first on what you're using that word to to represent and then you can talk about it which is why I realized that there was no beating around the bush anymore. I needed to come up with a, a working definition of intelligence. And long story short, I think the best operational definition of intelligence is very, very simply behavioral flexibility, which which includes the it, it includes adaptation, uh, behavioral adaptability, of course, learning from the past, but. I like to point out that adaptation is passive. Adaptation is, is simply you change as a response to what happened to you. Behavioral flexibility goes well beyond that. Behavioral flexibility includes your capability to act now according to your desired futures, uh, an even more, uh, an even wider, more flexible, again, definition of intelligence is behavioral flexibility that allows you to maximize your future states. Notice that when, you, when we define intelligence as maximizing your future states, anything that keeps you alive is by definition extremely intelligent, right? Because you only have future states if you remain alive. To take the idea of, uh, of flexibility, I guess it, there is it might be intuitive in a sense that then the opposite of intelligence is just doing the exact same thing no matter where you are and no matter what you want. All over again. Exactly. Exactly. Or or um, responding to different things in highly predictable ways. Hmm. 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 Fascinating. Right? So ever since I came up with that working definition of intelligence is intelligence is behavioral flexibility. I've, I've started experimenting with it, right? I've, I've, I've started trying to live my life by that 
idea that intelligent decisions are decisions that keep doors open or decisions that maximize my future state. And I started, you know, just spreading the word to my, to my kids and to my parents too. And it became, it's become kind of an exercise. Let me give you my, my fundamental practical uses of intelligence. The most intelligent thing I do when I leave my house is to make sure that I always have my keys on me because that maximizes my chances of coming back to the safety and comfort of my house, right? So if all else fails, I want to be able to come back to my, to my house. So play, play with that a little bit more and you reach your, your minimal survival kit in the modern civilized world, which is always have keys, some sort of money, and ID that maximizes your future. Also, final thing, let me add this one thing. The, by, by those definitions, the most intelligent thing any human, any modern human can do to themselves is to educate themselves because that's what you gain with education. You, you gain, you open doors, you, you, you gain possibilities, right? You, 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 you give yourself more and more opportunities, more and more chances of a better future. So nothing more intelligent than listening to podcasts, listening to people who have uh, <laughs> cool ideas and different ways of looking at things that you hadn't considered before and just trying that out. Educate yourself. That's what a wonderful, what a wonderful way to approach the close. Um, I know that across species, for example, primates, bigger primates tend to have bigger brains, therefore more neurons. Uh, I've heard you say that within a species that doesn't happen, so bigger humans are not necessarily having more uh, neurons than, than, than smaller humans. What about in the case in between, say, dog breeds? So when you have a very, very small dog and a very, very big dog, that kind of it would make sense to think that you can pack more neurons into the big dog, therefore the big dog is smarter. Are big dogs smarter, or do we have any information on this? Um, we don't have enough data to say that. What I can tell you is that in our study on carnivorans, we did have one very small dog and one pretty large dog. And yes, the larger dog had way more neurons than the small dog. So way more, I mean, it, it was the difference from 400 million to 600 million, which is 50% more. Um, but do different dog breeds behave as if they were different species? I'd say it's likely, but until we have the actual data, my guess is as good as any. When we started, I mentioned this, this idea that the human brain is uniquely shaped, perhaps overly large prefrontal cortex. Nope, not the case. But when we look at the human brain and we see that we have this huge, very dense cortical area in general, the cortex has more neurons than any other brain in the world. Is it the same relationship, though, toward to cerebellum and the brainstem, or is our cortex bigger relative to the other areas of our brain than either other primates or other mammals or anyone else? Nope, sorry, still not outliers. Or, or a cortex has the number of neurons that you would expect for take your choose your metric here for mammals for primates for for a primate from primate which is which is which is what we are. Okay, exactly. Okay, well, before we finish, a final question that I 
always ask guests all of the research, all of the reading and thinking that you've done around our primate nature. How has it shaped your outlook on our species? I, I'm, I'm only more and more aware that we are just another animal out there, really, um, albeit one that with all these neurons, we have a very long life, which allows us to build a huge body of culture that we keep alive by bidding, just by passing it on to, uh, to the next generations. But what I, I wish people were more aware of is that that cultural transfer, that keeping humanity alive is active. It's something that needs to be actively done every generation anew. And that takes schools, that takes universities, that takes education and training, and um, it, it takes effort. It's, it, it's not, again, there's no free lunch. So it, it takes the effort. And, and if people are not willing to put in the effort, our species may very well just die out. Like we know that so many other species died out, especially, and um, here's the, the kicker, I guess, we know that the bigger a species is, um, the more likely it is to become extinct. We're there. We're that species that's pretty big that uh, postpones as um, the longest its reproduction and the things that we treasure in our modern world they're hard earned they're not biology they're they're the consequence of our uh, of our use of the biology that we inherit through this active transferring of of knowledge and technology and values that build a culture. And that takes effort, and we need to we need to acknowledge that that it takes effort. It's not enough to have a human biology. Human nature comes with the effort that we put into it. Professor Susanna Herculana Husel, thank you very much. My pleasure. Great talking to you. So that was it today. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoy the On Humans podcast but feel like you could learn even more from it, like you sometimes forget things and would like to get back to it, either just to check some highlights or, or to dig deeper in understanding how different ideas in these episodes link to one another, you have now more ways to do so. You can read the On Humans newsletter now on Substack, and this will give you a lot of nice extra content in a written format. As a Patreon member, you can also get a lot of useful extras, from episode prefaces to Zoom calls and seminars with me. But that's it for now. Until next time, take care.